0: Coming up on Tech Nation, we hear from Daniel Pink about regret. Most of us want to slip it under the carpet, but Daniel finds it can be broken down. There are four basic types, and you can begin to ease it with 15 minutes a day over three days. His book is The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. Then, Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft. Talks about burnout in hospital professionals due to COVID. How serious is it? How does it affect other patients? And how might we plan for future pandemics? All this, coming up on this week's Tech Nation.
1: Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes.
0: In 2012, I interviewed Harvard professor and experimental psychologist Steven Pinker, the author of The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. He writes, In every era, the way people raise their children is a window into their conception of human nature.
2: Well, when people believed that children were possessed by the devil, they uh, had to beat the devil out of them, quite literally, and you had uh, high rates of corporal punishment of children. When you have a different conception that children are uh, blank slates written on by their parents and culture, then childhood is filled with lessons for moral improvement and uh, constant stimulation. When empathy is considered the cardinal virtue, then you've got to raise the empathic child. So. Uh, I introduced that, uh, that 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 observation after I heard uh, a mother admonishing a fussy child who was picking on his kid sister. Empathy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I take that as a sign of the times of how empathy is now valued as the uh, one of the cardinal virtues. We've understood this in
0: in science about how we thought blood worked this way and it worked that way, (laughs) (laughs) what were the laws of physics, all these kind of things that we didn't know. But it never occurred to me that we've actually had this perspective of what human nature was like. And that, in fact, that ended up affecting everything else.
2: That's right. And the uh, there is a romantic conception of human nature, that we're naturally cooperative and peaceful. If we could only return to a state of nature, the world's troubles would melt away. It's our institutions that have made us more violent by defining private property, by uh, setting up laws and then enforcing them. The overall sweep of history, I, I think, goes in the other direction, that, in fact, our species. Uh, has always been violent for as long as we've been human, that there were, in fact, far higher rates of violence in earlier periods when we uh, lived beyond, without states before states were invented or in parts of the world that lived beyond the reach of states, and that human history has very largely been a a process of keeping our devils under control and that our institutions have made us less violent. So it's not neither that human nature is... Uh, innately peaceable. Our ancestors certainly weren't. Nor is it that we have an innate thirst for blood, a violent brain, you know, killer ape DNA that dooms us to violence forever because we do have cognitive mechanisms that are over the long run clever enough to figure out ways of uh, inhibiting violence. And the course of human history is we've been getting better and better at doing it.
0: It's really very interesting. Uh, I was thinking there's a, a person that we all work with, a colleague who came from a very distrusting family and uh, with two boys. And when it came to, say, a single piece of cake, um, it was one cuts, the other picks. Instead of who needs to get what done and who could do it, it was like, well, we're going to measure how, and, and then somebody else is going to pick it. are like, where did this all come from? You're screwing everything up.
2: <laughs> so, <laughs> well, w- you know, one divides the other picks is an excellent example of how we think of conflict as a problem to be solved. We take into account a feature of human nature, namely people tend to be biased in favor of themselves and they don't realize it. They always think they're doing the right, just uh, thing. But uh, any disinterested party... But they've
0: explained it in that way, but in fact, yeah. it works for them. <laughs>
2: it always, exactly, it works for them. And so if you just have the rule, one divides, the other chooses then uh, even if people are selfish, you'll end up with a fair outcome because if the divider uh, hopes to get the bigger piece and divides it unevenly in anticipation, it'll, it'll just end up worse off. And so no one has to be particularly noble or angelic. We've just used our ingenuity to come up with a scheme that will reduce conflict even with our flawed natures. And so I think that's a very good encapsulation of what's happened over the course of human history.
0: You've been listening to a 2012 Tech Nation interview with experimental psychologist Steven Pinker, the author of The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. He remains the John Stone Family Professor of Psychology at Harvard University, and in 2016, he was elected to the National Academy of Sciences. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Daniel Pink. You know him from his many books, such as When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, or from his TED Talk, watched by 38 million viewers. He's here today with the power of regret, how looking backward moves us forward. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft takes us deeper into burnout in hospital professionals due to COVID-19 and how it affects many non-COVID patients as well.
3: Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at MindK.com.
0: And now, Daniel Pink. Well, Daniel, welcome back to Tech Nation.
3: Moira, great to be with you.
0: Now, I was so surprised this time around for this book. You picked the topic of regret. Talk about something that's individual to each person and emotionally charged and by its definition, not in a terrifically positive way.
3: (laughs) Well, you've hit all three. Uh, You put all three of the reasons to my mind. To write this kind of book, um, so let's go for each of them. Number one, that it is emotionally charged. Um, one of the things that I discovered in working on this book is that we don't do a very good job of dealing with our negative emotions. And uh, in some ways, and I think the pandemic is bringing this out, we are kind of, we've kind we been over-indexed on positivity, and we don't know what to do with our negative emotions, and so I wanted to discover that. The other thing is that you know if you look at this emotion of regret, it is ubiquitous. There's plenty of research showing that it is one of the most common emotions of any kind that we have. It's the most common negative emotion that we have. Uh, And and to me, after doing all this research, it's hard to take, but it's harder to avoid. And actually, if we deal with it in a sensible way, we can actually turn regret into an engine for progress. One thing
0: that I learned when uh, I read this book is that there isn't just regret there are different kinds of regrets.
3: Sure. Uh, so one of the things that that I did for, for this body of, of work is that I decided to do a lot of research on my own. So I looked at some of the academic research. I did a big, actually, public opinion survey, but I also did something that proved to be even more revelatory. And it was something that I called the World Regret Survey, where I invited people around the world to submit their regrets. And we ended up with... <laughs> 16,000 over six, we have over 17,000 now over 17,000 regrets from people in 105 countries. So this massive trove of human longing and aspiration. And what I found, being the sort of person who's willing to read through 17,000 regrets is that over and over again, around the world, people kept expressing the same four core regrets. And I'll tell you very quickly what they are. And it's irrespective of the domain of life. At some level, the way that we were thinking about regret in the past was a little bit off. We would say, oh, this is an education regret or a career regret or a romance regret. And what I found is that a layer beneath there are these four core regrets. So one of them are what I call foundation regrets. Foundation regrets are if only I'd done the work. These are people who regret smoking who regret not exercising enough, who regret not taking care of their bodies, not saving money, not working hard in school, small choices that accumulate to big consequences. Second category, boldness regrets. If only I take in the chance. And this is the kind of thing where it doesn't matter the domain of life. I have hundreds of people in this database who regret not asking somebody out on a date years ago. Uh, hundreds of people who regret not starting a business, hundreds of people, all kinds of Amer- I mean, you know, Tech Nation listeners, if you want a business idea, start a travel agency for people, Americans who didn't study abroad in college. It's one of like <laughs> comes up all the time. So boldness. What <laughs> I'm telling you, there's so many people, Moira, who have that regret, so many college graduates who have that regret. So boldness regrets are if only I'd taken the chance. Moral regrets are if only I'd done the right thing. These are people who regret bullying people when they were younger, who regret sort of stealing and other kinds of misdeeds. A lot of marital infidelity on that. And then finally, our connection regrets. And these are regrets about relationships, um, not only romantic relationships, in fact, mostly not romantic relationships that should be intact, that somehow come apart and people don't want to reach out to bring them back together and they regret it. So um, so these four regrets, foundation, boldness, moral and connection are really this kind of hidden architecture of what we, you know, to me, what we want out of life.
0: And with the Beijing Olympics coming up, why are Olympic gold medalists and bronze medalists happier than silver medalists? (laughs) What's up with that?
3: (laughs) This is a crazy thing. All right. So you would think logically that and this goes to the heart of what regret is. You would think logically that you line up a bunch of medalists on the podium the happiest person is the gold medalist. The second happiest person is a silver medalist. And the third happiest person is the bronze medalist. And you would be wrong. Uh, what uh, a pile of research starting with some work done by Vicky Medvek and Tom Gilovich uh, almost 30, about 30 years ago and replicated many, many times is that the happiest person on the podium as people evaluate their facial expressions, gold medalist, no surprise. But the second happiest person, the bronze medalist. They're often beaming. The person who doesn't look all that pumped. The silver medalist, and this is the reason why we human beings are incredible uh, time travelers and storytellers, and that those capacities combine to make us good at what's called counterfactual thinking. Counterfactual thinking, so, so situations that run counter to the actual facts. So the person who got the silver medalist says, "If only I kicked a little harder, I'd be a gold medalist." All right, that's an upward counterfactual. The person who got the bronze medalist said, oh, at least I didn't finish fourth. I'm happy about that. And that's a downward counterfactual. And so regret is the quintessential upward counterfactual. It begins with this feeling of if only. That makes us feel bad. And all of us have these regrets. But they also, if we treat them right, they help us do a lot better on a whole range of tasks.
0: Well, we're going to get to treat them right. But let's go a little deeper into how we're treating regrets in general. I I absolutely love the name of your uh, chapter entitled The Life-Threatening Nonsense of No Regrets. (laughs) There are those people. The past is the past. You can't change it. Don't put any energy in there. It's like, why are you even saying this? Why is this an issue?
3: Well, I mean, it's a really bad... I mean, no regrets is a very bad blueprint for life. This idea that I never look backward i never look backward i never think about my mistakes i never think about what i did wrong i just endlessly am positive and plow forward that is a very bad strategy for life and the truth is is that for most people who at least profess it they're not telling the truth they're pretending (laughs) they're performing because what we know from 60 years of research is that everybody has regrets everybody has regrets The only people without regrets truly are five-year-olds because their brains haven't developed, people with lesions in the orbital frontal cortex of their brain because that lesion is disturbing the processing of counterfactual thinking and regret, certain kinds of people with Huntington's disease and Parkinson's disease, and sociopaths. So if you don't have regrets, it's a sign that you're either a tiny child or you have a grave problem. Because the rest of us have regrets. They are ubiquitous. And the reason they're ubiquitous is because they are useful. Our regrets instruct us. Our regrets clarify the path for us if we treat them right.
0: Well, the good news is that you can learn from your mistakes. Isn't that
3: part of it? Totally. If you are willing to if you are willing to confront them. And, and this is this is the key, Moira. That's like we have this notion, you asked a little bit about no this no regrets philosophy. We think that saying I have no regrets is a sign of courage. That's not courage. That's delusion. What is courage is staring your regrets in the eye and doing something about them. And that's how we learn. And, and so but the problem is, and I don't, don't want to put I'm not blaming people out there. My position is that we've sort of in our broader society, we have sort of over indexed on positivity. We think that We have to be positive all the time. And it's important to be positive. And we want to have a lot of positive emotions. And positive emotions should outnumber our negative emotions. But if negative emotions help us, we need them to survive. I mean, you're a biotech person. There's a reason evolution put negative emotions in our brains, right? Because it instructs us. And what we need to do with our regret is, I mean okay, I'll use a 50 cent word that I know that your listeners can deal with, which is anthropomorphize, all right? We want to anthropomorphize (laughs) our regrets, right? Some of us want to look at our regrets and say they are strangers who we should ignore. Ignore the regrets. Some of them are, say, let's look at them as St. Peter at the gate, passing final judgment on your worth as a human being. That's dangerous too. What we want to do is look at regret as a teacher. We don't want to ignore regrets. We don't want to wallow in our regrets. We want to Think about them. We want to confront them because when we do, there's a pile of evidence showing they can help us make better decisions. They can help us become better problem solvers, and they can deepen our sense of meaning in life.
0: Okay. How do you know you're really denying a regret?
3: Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, It depends. I guess it's sort of when you, when you, you, okay, let's think about regret is a negative feeling. Regret is a negative feeling. All right. And there's sometimes we just want to banish that negative feeling. And that's okay in some cases. So let's say, so I've got a guy who I write about who got a tattoo. I got plenty of people who have tattoos as they know regrets. I got one guy who got a a tattoo that said no regrets. 14 years later, regretted it and had his tattoo removed. So that's something that he can do to address that regret. Um, We can undo regrets of inaction, regrets of Um, Regrets of action. Regrets of inaction. When we regret what we didn't do. I didn't ask him out on a date. I didn't start that business. I didn't take that chance. I didn't reach out to my friend before she died. Um, When those things stick with us, it's a sign. When they keep knocking at our door, it's a sign that we should open the door and pay attention to them. And there are many of these regrets that if if we go through a process where we say, you know what? I have a regret. That makes me human. Let me try to make sense of it and extract a lesson from it going forward. That is one of the healthiest things that we can do.
0: Well, I get that. That's interesting. It's like if it didn't matter to you, it wouldn't come knocking at your door. It's that simple.
3: Exactly. Exactly. And, and the thing is, it's like well, it's, it's a very interesting point. One of the things that you see in, in the data, at least some of the data that I collected, is let's go back to this idea of inaction and action regrets. Action regrets Often last longer, uh, last shorter because we can do something about them. We can make amends, we can repair, we can do what those bronze medalists did, which is at least them and find the silver lining in them. But inaction regrets often gnaw at us for a very long time. And one of the things you see in the data is that around age 20, people have roughly equal numbers of action and inaction regrets. But as they age, those inaction regrets start to predominate because they keep, they don't necessarily knock, they don't necessarily pound at our door, but they tap at our door. 5 a.m. 5
0: a.m. is when they come.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and that tapping is not going to go away unless you unless you confront it intelligently.
0: You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gutt, and my guest today is Daniel Pink. You know him from his many books, starting with A Whole New Mind, Why Right-Brainers Will Rule the Future and When. The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. And perhaps you're one of the 38 million who've watched his TED talk. He's here today with the power of regret. How looking backward moves us forward. Well, another way to do this, as you say, is to relive and relieve. Mm. What are you talking about?
3: Yeah. Again, one of the problems we have, Moira, is that nobody ever taught us how to deal with negative emotions we we say oh forget about them be positive all right and that y- you can get through a couple of days that way maybe a couple of weeks but eventually what happens is is that you can't banish them forever and so people end up getting brought down by them so what you need is you need to deal with these things systematically so the, the first step in my view is you actually have to treat yourself with what is known as self-compassion this is the work of kristen neff at the university of texas for someone like me, sort of who sort of prides himself on being a hard-headed guy, that phrase, self-compassion, sounded a little gooey to me. But the research on this is very impressive. It's very impressive, and the concept is very powerful. And essentially what it is is this. The first step is to treat yourself with the same kind of kindness that you would treat somebody else. We tend to treat ourselves with contempt rather than kindness. We make a mistake, and our self-talk is so brutal, it's so cruel, we would never treat any, talk to anybody that way. So self-compassion says, treat yourself with kindness. Also, don't think you're that special. If I have a regret about not reaching out, do you think I'm the only one without that without regret? No way. So, so, so recognize your regrets are part of the human experience and they don't fully define you. The next step, which is really interesting, is to disclose the regret. Disclose the regret. Now, what's interesting about this is that disclosure is a form of unburdening. Uh, so it relieves it. And and when we relive it by disclosing it, we do something really powerful that I didn't really realize until I looked at this research. The, our negative emotions are blobby and abstract. But when we convert them to language, we defang them. We take these blobby, menacing abstractions and put them into concrete, less fearsome words. And so that minimizes them. By reliving the event, we, we actually minimize it. We convert it into language, which is less menacing. And then that helps us make sense of it. And, the, and then the other thing about disclosure, which is that we've, we've gotten disclosure wrong. We think that when we disclose our vulnerabilities and our mistakes, people like us less. Nope. They like us more. They admire our courage they empathize with us. So you look inward and reframe it, give your, let yourself off the hook. You express outward and disclose it to make sense of it. And then you draw a lesson from it. And this is key. You got to say, okay, you know, and, and one thing you can do to draw a lesson from it is what's called self-distancing, which is, it sounds weird, but talk to yourself in the, in the third person. So instead of if you, Moira, are dealing with a regret, don't say, what should I do? Say, what should Moira do? Or even better, ask yourself, what would you tell your best friend to do? in response to this regret? What lesson does it teach you? And then what should your friend do next and follow that? And so if we just do this, like chill out a little bit, use our brains rather than our, you know, rather than our, our, uh, our limb, you know, use this, the the front part of our brain rather than our limbic system, get our cortisol levels down a little bit and go through this process. um, We can turn these regrets into instruments of, of progress. And again, this is not some kind of Exhortation. There's a pile of social psychology showing. Leaning into your regrets makes you a better negotiator. It makes you a better problem solver. It makes you a better corporate strategist. Um, it it allows you to. It it allows you to. I mean, you know, for all you Wordle fans out there, there's a pile of evidence with using seriously using like these like anagrams. A lot psychologists love anagrams. There's so much research on anagrams. You're much better at anagrams if you lean into your regret. So, you know, at the very least, (laughs) regret can not only point you to a life well-lived, but it can actually make you better at Wordle.
0: Interesting. Right when you were talking, you said, yes, say Moira, as if Moira, you are talking to yourself or better have your best friend tell you. And it's what would your best friend tell you? I was I was amazed because the moment you switched from Moira to my best friend, there was a lot of judgment that left.
3: Precisely, precisely. That's the thing. I mean, one of the things that comes out in, a, in this research, and it, it goes, this goes way beyond regret, Moira, is that we tend to be terrible at solving our own problems. <laughs> um, and the reason is that we're too enmeshed in the details. We don't see the big picture but we're pretty good at solving other people's problems because there's less of the judgment that you're talking about. You're less of a scuba diver and more of an oceanographer. And so what you have to do in, in a way, and there's some great research on self-distancing. I mean, uh, Ethan Cross at um, at University of Michigan has done some really, really great work on this. Uh, Igor Grossman at the University of Waterloo in uh, Ontario has done some really great work on this. Is What you want to do is just... Take it is, is, is distance yourself in in space, in time. Think about your do, do something even like imagine you take your regret and you're just a doctor of regret sciences and you're examining it in a laboratory and you're just diagnosing it as a specimen. But again, I, I've always thought that one of the best decision making tools, forget about regret and anything, is what would you tell your best friend to do? And if you think about that, people almost instantly know the answer. And what would you tell your best friend to do is is not saying, oh, just bury that regret for 40 years and don't (laughs) deal with it and it'll never emerge. You say, hey, you know what? Maybe, you know, let yourself off the hook. Talk to me about it and let's come up with a plan.
0: I also want to point out when you say write or talk about your, you know, to relive this and your regret, you actually have some short. Uh, short in terms of days, how you do this. Let's go there.
3: Sure. I mean, there, it, there's some interesting research. Um, this is sort of the work of both Sonia Libramorsky at the University of California Riverside and then James Pennebaker, who has done some incredible research at the University of Texas for 30 years on the importance of just writing about uh, writing as a form of, of sense making. But truly, if you take your regret, and write about it for 15 minutes a day for three consecutive days that is going to defang it considerably and even more important it's going to begin the sense-making process again you're, you're you're converting it regret is this stomach churning feeling and and writing about it is in some ways an antacid and it allows you to sort of mellow it out and then to make and then to make sense of it and the way to make sense of it is to is to take a step back and say, what would you tell your best friend to do or talk to yourself in the third person or imagine it's five years in the future and you're looking back and you decide what to do and just take something very easy and say, okay, this is what I learned. So next time I'm going to speak up. Next time I'm going to ask her out on a date. Next time I am going to tell the truth.
0: 15 minutes a day for three days in a row. Yes. And there will be some difference. That's that can be done. That can be done.
3: Absolutely can be done. And I am, you know, the more time I spend working on this stuff, the more I think like we we got to go for small wins, short, easy interventions that 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 move the needle, forgive the cliche uh, a little bit. What I don't want is say, and therefore, if you have regrets, please begin my nine week process (laughs) that requires two hours a day of meditation. No, Um, (laughs) no. let yourself off the hook. And if you want write about your regret for 15 minutes a day for three days, and that will begin the sense making process, which will allow you to extract a lesson for from it for next time.
0: Now I have to say the only one of this, you must have 20, 18, 20, uh, uh, things that you can do here, how you would deal with it, deal with it. Sometimes depending on what kind of regret it is. Um, but one that I just didn't really want to get into was, create a failure resume.
3: I love the failure resume. (laughs)
0: Oh, okay. You got to sell me on this. The failure
3: resume (laughs) is so good.
0: I'm speaking with Daniel Pink, the author of The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on Apple Podcasts, Pandora, and Alexa, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, Technation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about burnout in professionals due to COVID-19 and the effects throughout the hospital. Stay with us. are listening to Tech Nation. I'm speaking with Daniel Pink, the author of The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward.
3: I love the failure resume.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. You got to sell me on this. The Dan. failure <laughs> resume
3: is so good. It's not my idea. It's an idea. It's the brainchild of Tina Seelig, who's at Stanford University. And Tina had this brilliant idea where you, we we have these resumes, right? And these sparkling documents of how incredible we are and all of our accomplishments or, you know, nowadays you have people with these LinkedIn profiles and sometimes I look at them and I think, "Oh my god, there should be like when I open your LinkedIn profile, there should be like m- like music oh. swelling in the background, <laughs> right? You know, because it's like, "Oh, you are, you know, clearly up there in that with, you know, Buddha and Christ and Mohammed here." And um and that's cool. Resumes are cool. A failure resume is the flip side of that, which is where you, and it can be only for your own consumption too. And I, I think in some ways that's very, very healthy only for your own consumption. List all of your failures and your screw-ups and your setbacks and your mistakes. And then the weight, what I did, and I've done this myself, I list those things. It's embarrassing. It's not pleasant. Then in the next column, I list Okay, what lesson did I learn from that? And for me, what was instructive is that in some cases, there really wasn't a lesson. In, some, in a few cases, it was just like, okay, like, bad stuff happens, and some things are out of your control, and you just don't know. Um, but more important was that when I made those list of the lessons, I found myself making that I had made the same two mistakes over and over and over and over again and so you list the lesson and then you list what you're going to do about it next time. And so for me the failure resume was a way to surface um, even though it was painful to list and I've never shown it to anybody. It 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 was like an MRI expose, hey,
0: this is what you do.
3: <laughs> this is this yeah, you're you're making these two screw-ups and you need to stare it in the eye. I, I I you know, the alternative to that more would be like, oh, no regrets and then I keep making the same mistake over and over <laughs> yeah. and over.
0: You're insisting. You're insisting. I'm- Regrets. Past is past. Don't look back there. Uh, I, I, you also deal with future decisions. And I learned a new word, satisfice. Satis as oh. in satisfactory. And FICE, F-I-C-E as in sacrifice. Satisfice. What does that word mean?
3: This is a very important word and a very important concept. And it is a you know, it's it's it's. I think it's a cornerstone of our understanding of so- social psychology and human decision making. So, to oversimplify a bit, when we make decisions, we can maximize. So, I'm going to get the best meal at this restaurant. I'm going to get the best car I can possibly get. I'm going to buy the finest sweater around. All right. Uh, so, we want to maximize, and that seems sensible. And traditional neoclassical economics says that people are maximizers. Um, satisficing is all right. It's good enough. Uh, where you just take take good enough. And what a pile of research tells us, Barry Schwartz, uh, uh, formerly at, at Swarthmore, has done a lot, did a lot of the early work on this, it shows us is that maximizers are miserable. They're miserable. Um, and, that, um, and, and, that's, and that satisficers tend to be happier. And the key, though, I think it's sort of a central element in leading a good life, is like, what do we maximize on and what do we satisfy on? And, wh- and when we think about our future regrets, what we should do is we should really focus on these four core regrets, because cl- it's pretty clear to me that in the future, you are going to regret not building a stable foundation for your life. You're going to regret not taking the chance. You're going to regret doing the wrong thing, and you're going to regret not reaching out. But the others, st- so maximize on those, but satisfy on everything else. Should I buy a blue car or a, gre- a green car? I don't care. It doesn't matter. I can almost guarantee that a year from now, you're not, it's not going to matter to you. Should I have macaroni and cheese tonight, or should I have pork dumplings? It doesn't matter. Um, and so, what we need to do, and it's it's central to our ability to get through the day and lead a meaningful life, is maximize on the few set of things that are really important, which is you, you know our foundation and our our chance to lead a psychologically rich life and to be moral and to be connected to in love with other people. And the other stuff, man, just satisfies on uh,
0: it's it's amazing to me, I, I saw that word, and I just was just taken aback. I said, "Wait a minute, this gives us a differential in the choices we make, all choices we make i don 't think we've ever talked about that before
3: yeah it 's a concept that's been around for a while, but but we don't we don't talk about it enough because we tend to think again it's it 's interesting i hadn't made this connection before it's related a little bit to this relentless focus on positivity where our goal is to maximize everything. And yeah, I believe in maximizing certain things, but I think i also believe in strategically maximizing the right things and satisficing a lot of things. It doesn't matter ultimately what sweater I wear today. It really doesn't. It does matter if I have a friend who I've lost touch with and I think, at, I think man, should I reach out to him? No, it's gonna be really awkward and he's not gonna care. And then I let that relationship drift more. That actually is going to matter to me over time.
0: Now, there are some people, unfortunately, who are listening to this, who say, you don't understand. I did something that caused the death of a child or my child. I did something unspeakable. Is there a different category or does this actually still work?
3: Yeah, that's a harder one because well, everything you've talked about are regrets of, of action. And a lot of the regrets of action that you're describing there are things that are you cannot undo. And so those are incredibly debilitating. I think that the way to deal with them, imperfect though it is, is the same way, is to disclose it, to make sense of it, and then to draw a lesson from it in the future. There are some regrets that I like to call closed door regrets and open door regrets, open door regrets. You still have a chance to make amends or do the thing that you hadn't done. Closed door regrets. And I have people like that who didn't call a friend who ended up ended up dying. Um, You can't really do anything about them and you do suffer from them. Uh, A way to suffer less is to extract a lesson from it and apply it to the future. But there's no way to there's no way to mitigate all of that suffering. Um, but you can actually use the suffering in service of something else if you uh, if you extract a lesson from it that you can apply to other aspects of your life. So there, a good example of that is somebody uh, with a closed door regret is a woman who I talked to um, in California who had a uh, this very good childhood friend and she learned her childhood friend had cancer and um And she learned that the cancer had actually gotten considerably worse. And she wanted to call her friend, but she put it off. She wanted to call her friend. She put it off. She wanted to call her friend. She put it off. And she called. And the morning she called, the friend had passed away a few hours ago. And so she's devastated by that. And it feels terrible. And you can't undo that. What did she do? She's never going to erase that hurt. However, what she did do is, sadly, she had another friend with with cancer and in that case she learned her lesson and she reached out she exchanged text messages and she she talked to the friend she called the friend she kept in touch with the friend and that friend too sadly also died but this woman her first name is Amy didn't have regrets about that and so you can't extinguish those kinds of horrible things but you can we can as human beings make sense of them and use them to guide our future behavior
0: well, we've all heard of Nobel Prizes, and it was a great example that you had, in that we can also do things beyond our life.
3: Uh, well, what's interesting is that there, there, there's a famous story about um, about uh, Alfred Nobel, who woke up one morning and saw his obituary in the paper, and it was a mistake, and uh, that was actually the, his brother had actually died, but the obituary was savage because Alfred Nobel was a, you know, he was an inventor of dynamite. He invented munitions, he invented weapons and things like that. And and the headline of the of the obit was the merchant of death is dead. And he's like, whoa, wait a second. Like, this is how I'm going to be remembered. And so he anticipated. So he sort of he was able to anticipate his regrets and actually turn his life around in some ways and establish the Nobel Prize for people who were making positive change in the world. And the idea here is that when we anticipate our regrets, Um, we can actually steer our lives in a slightly different direction we don't necessarily always have to have the retrospective pain of experiencing the regret we can actually be look prospectively and say hmm i'm at this juncture in my life am i going to regret this decision and we and we can't use that for everything in part for some of the reasons of the maximizing and satisficing issues that we were talking about earlier But we can use that for some very important things. In my view, looking at these 16,000 regrets from around the world is that if you're at a juncture in your life where you can do the right thing or do the wrong thing, do the right thing. You're not going to regret it. If you're at a juncture in your life where you think, should I reach out or should I not reach out? You've answered the question. Reach out. You're not going to regret that. Um, And so anticipating our regrets can be a way to not only to learn from previous mistakes, but to avoid future ones.
0: (laughs) So Alfred Nobel just wasn't a science fan. I'll be darned.
3: (laughs) Who knew? (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, I mean, he you know, he he invented he I mean, he invented the tools and technology to allow human beings to destroy each other. And, you know, he realized that that was going to be his legacy. And that was a kind of a rude awakening.
0: Exactly. Think about, think about what you're doing. Think about what you're doing. Uh, as I understand it, you can still take the World Regret Survey. How do you do that?
3: You just go to worldregretsurvey.com. What we've done is we've collected now 17,000 plus regrets from all over the world. And we have, you can just include your regret. Uh, it's sort of, you know, at one point more, I felt like I was running an online confessional. Um and but it's it's fascinating. People are very forthcoming about what they regret, and it's it's anonymous. Although you can leave your email if you want to be contacted, but you don't have to. And you you put in your your gender identity and your your location, and then we also have an interactive map, so you can go and say what a what a you know if you're curious, what are the last eight regrets from Wyoming? What are the last eight regrets from Sri Lanka? Uh, and you can see what other people regret. And I think once you do that, you'll realize that. I mean, listen, all of your listeners are special, but you're not that special. Everybody has regrets. And what's really key is that we are intelligent about how we deal with them because this vastly misunderstood emotion can be can give us a path to the good life.
0: And it's day one of your three day writing journey. <laughs>
3: right. 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 Find your regret, write about it for 15 minutes a day, and then send that email to Moira.
0: No, no,
3: no.
0: <laughs> I'll regret not reading them all. No. Yeah. <laughs> Daniel, such a pleasure. You know, you're always welcome on Tech Nation. Hope to see you soon.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Moira. Always a, always a delight.
0: My guest today is Daniel Pink. His book is The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. It's published by Riverhead Books. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Today, Tech Nation Health chief correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, talks about burnout at medical centers due to the COVID-19 pandemic. We also hear about how it affects patients with other medical conditions, as well as what might be done in planning for a future pandemic. We've been in this COVID pandemic for months and months now. Uh, we keep hearing about burnout from healthcare providers, uh, and now there is a documentary out called "The First Wave," documenting some of this this burnout. What can you tell us about it?
4: Well, I was lucky to see uh, a sneak peek uh, of this amazing documentary that just came out called called "The First Wave" by the director Matthew Heineman, who's a pretty remarkable guy. Also, did the documentary in 2012 called "Escape Fire: The Fight to Rescue American Healthcare," uh, but this documentary is quite remarkable in that. Somehow they got into uh, New York City hospitals in the first hundred days of the pandemic in in let's say March of 2020, and followed closely a few clinicians and nurses and patients and their family stories. It's it's really kind of hard to watch. It's very moving. It's uh, eye opening, and you know this is that was only the first wave of the pandemic uh, uh, focused around New York, but now we're uh, in the the fall winter of of 2021. So in March of 2020, you know. As the pandemic basically raged in New York City, they were having over a thousand deaths a day, and it was new uh you know doctors nurses uh you know were learning and were often feeling very frustrated about the inability to to manage these patients, uh many of which were you know dying in in, in droves and you might remember the scenes of the refrigerated trucks and so this this movie is quite remarkable it captures it in such a remarkable intimate way, especially with this uh young uh hospitalist dr uh Natalie Duje, And it's quite agonizing to watch the whole movie, but it opens eyes to the to the intimacy and the challenge that the health workers provide uh, to the patients uh, who made it and didn't make it and their families. And now we realize, you know, we're speaking now almost two years uh, later and the pandemic is sadly not over. And even before the pandemic, uh, between 35 and 54% of American nurses and physicians were already feeling quote unquote burned out Uh, and now it's significantly higher. It's obviously been a huge strain on healthcare workers early in the pandemic. You know, they were horns beeping and and clapping. Now we're at a point where, you know, we're in a pandemic of the mostly unvaccinated, uh, healthcare systems in many parts of the country are stretched thin. ICUs are full. Uh, and we now have on top of that, the loss of almost half a million healthcare workers since February, 2020, um, a morning consult survey, found that 18% of healthcare workers had quit since the pandemic began and about 12% have been laid off. So huge shifts uh, and huge challenges in our current states.
0: What would you say are the drivers behind people leaving the healthcare field?
4: Well, I recommend reading this terrific article by Ed Young in the Atlantic, which is called why healthcare workers are quitting in droves. And, and part of it, you know, even of course, precedes the pandemic, <laughs> uh, you know, Having spent a lot of time myself uh, documenting, you know, spending more time documenting healthcare than actually delivering it, uh, there's a lot of uh, "quote unquote" burnout and challenges just around our our, our technology, uh, particularly "quote unquote" EMRs, electronic medical records, which have been a huge burden on healthcare providers, where they feel almost more like data clerks and and data entries and billing managers than than folks taking care of patients. That was pre-pandemic, and, and still hasn't gone away. We're still stuck with fax machines and and pretty kludgy user interfaces for our, our EMRs. But now, with the pandemic, particularly stretching, you know, intensive care units and general wards uh, thinned. You've got you know clinicians who are doing their best, and you know we th- often thrive on having that patient uh, doctor or patient clinician um, relationship. You know, stretched thin with. With empathy being uh, thrown out the window, it's it's almost you need to almost be protective of yourself when you see you know sometimes hundreds of deaths and PTSD that can layer on top of that. So that's a component. I think healthcare workers are even more challenged now with the era of the infodemic. Uh, we have a, a, a misinformation campaign, which in some parts of the country, uh, you know, are leading healthcare workers to feel unsafe, uh, being threatened because they are advocates, uh, for, uh, vaccines or in some cases, folks still calling the pandemic a hoax. So huge challenges on top of very well-meaning, hardworking folks who often train for, for many, many years or decades to, to get into the healthcare pr- profession in the first place.
0: Now, when we say the, the ICUs are full, the hospital beds are full, everyone is working 24 seven, and this has been going on for months and months and months. Um, Still, people do have other disease conditions and do have other needs. Surgical needs is an example. You're a pediatric oncologist. Do you see any difference in the resources available to you because of the stress on the entire hospital?
4: Well, particularly in the early stages of the pandemic and in, in, the, in the spring of, of 2020, you know, almost every hospital stopped doing elective procedures, uh, elective screenings. Uh, let's say, for example, the standard mammogram or colonoscopies. So many folks missed getting their regular scheduled uh, screens, and therefore many cancers were were missed or picked up later. And so that has an effect on the pediatric oncology side. You know, pandemic or none, you're not going to stop kids from developing leukemias, lymphomas, and other malignancies. It's, thankfully, it's still relatively rare, but obviously we still tend t- a ton of focus. But you know it's very challenging for the patient, the kid, and their families and Now, when the family can't easily visit a child who might be admitted for their first round of chemotherapy, that has different short and long term implications uh, when you might have shortages of certain uh drugs or p p e masks uh, that can delay or challenge the ability to do a procedure, whether it's putting in a port line uh, or or doing outpatient or inpatient chemotherapy. So all these things kind of can stagger and have sometimes implications that we're not aware of. Uh, I think overall, you know, there was a big shift to more telemedicine and virtual care early in the pandemic, uh, catalyzed by new payment methods and making it easier to, to do virtual visits. Some of those enablements and payment models have been now reversed. And so virtual care, which had been quite popular and has been a game changer, is now being threatened by going back to our old status quo. And, and that can be a hindrance in the oncology pediatric world and beyond. And also uh, for providers who are often dealing with patients who might have to drive, you know, entire day just to get a checkup or 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 get a therapy, um, making it more difficult to do those sometimes easy interactions, which, we can, which can be done virtually. But big picture, you know, uh, the pandemic has been a big you know, eye opener to highlight the disparities, number one, the social disparities and who uh, has mortality, morbidity from COVID, but also the disparities of where healthcare, we like to think, you know, is advancing dramatically. Uh, it hasn't yet reached the promise of the fourth industrial age that many other fields have reached from how we do our digital banking to our, you know, digital entertainment. Uh, and I think it's been a forcing function to hopefully catalyze new shifts in how we rethink and reimagine healthcare across the continuum, including how we manage, you know, the, the moral distress of, of nurses, doctors, uh, and, and, and healthcare folks around the spectrum to, to be more resilient, uh, in normal times, but also respond during crises like this pandemic.
0: Now, some people might say, how do we get those healthcare workers to come back? Or how do we get more healthcare workers, highly trained healthcare workers tomorrow? Um, I have a slightly different question, uh, is it possible that in high stress jobs within the healthcare profession, because they have different levels of stresses, you know, all of these jobs, and in in such times as this pandemic, which we don't know how long it's going to go on, we would manage it differently, uh, for sure, if we knew exactly how long it would go on. Is it possible that we can't expect uh, healthcare workers to have high pressure cons- consistently? in their jobs that after so many months, we have to take them off and put them in a different place? Can we manage it differently that way? So we end up with a better retention?
4: Well, you know, if you have a football team or a baseball team, you have people on the bench and you have your first string folks going out, uh, whether, whether soccer, you, you know, the coach watches the, the team and the players and can cycle them in and out, but you need to have a, uh, your second string and your bench to fall back on and rotate people in and out hockey is a great example where it's high intensity people go in and out and they get some rest uh if you don't have any rest or you don't have anyone to to backfill uh that's a challenge so you know it might be somewhat about how you might schedule shifts it might be something about recognizing how to do better r and r there's lots of challenges in healthcare because it's 24 7 industry how do you manage circadian rhythms and people are doing night shifts and day shifts Um, So I think we can think and integrate better design thinking, you know, everything from how we interact with our electronic medical records. And now there's technologies like natural language processing, NLP. So you might be talking to a patient in the clinic or ER and that note is captured on the microphone and the note is partially written. So that can save time and stress. We can think about, you know, recognizing not just patients in distress, but clinicians in distress and giving them the breaks that they need and not forcing them to, to, to failure or recognizing the, the lead-ins for PTSD. It's been, you know, measured and what progresses to PTSD and let's say soldiers. But now we have uh, respiratory therapists, nurses, front desk clerks who've been through uh, not just, you know, one war, but equivalent of, of multiple. And it, it doesn't really exactly have a a complete end in sight. So I think we need to, you know, you can't just say, Oh, go use this meditation app or, or go take a nap. Um, we need to think more holistically about the health of our healthcare providers and, and, and do better design thinking and, and, build more resilient resiliency into these systems as well, which means, you know, it's not helped when folks don't get vaccinated and they get their, uh, their, uh, information from, from certain news sources where it's been shown, you know, early in the pandemic, those who watched, uh, certain news channels had much higher rates of mortality and morbidity. Uh, and that sort of continues in our, in our age of, of, of misinformation. So if we all do a part, you know, to not just as we did squash the first wave to give more, uh, time and, decompression for COVID, we need to think about all playing our part, getting vaccinated, getting boosted, uh, listening to our public health officials and the best science uh, if we're going to sort of address the challenges of healthcare holistically, including that of, of burnout uh, uh, for healthcare providers.
0: Now, I do understand that what I suggested, if, if it was just implemented that way, uh, has to cost more money. And it's like, wait a minute, it already costs too much money. I understand that. But in the idea of we don't know how long this pandemic is going to go on. It certainly isn't good if people aren't getting health care, but we have to have preparedness for future situations like this. We can't just say, oh, it's really bad now. We'll just burn them all out. We can't do that. That's not right. That's not a smart thing to do in general. And it certainly isn't a good thing to do for the people who are, are working in these areas.
4: You know, absolutely. I mean, uh, I spent a lot of time this last year chairing the X Prize pandemic alliance task force and looking at elements of everything from testing and diagnostics to the mental health angles and so in some ways we could still see this pandemic as horrible as it's been as a practice pandemic uh it's likely we'll have others we're now in this you know globalized world where someone who's infected in one part of the world can move uh, on a jet plane and be anywhere else in the world 24 hours later so we need to take the lessons from this pandemic the failings and the and the learnings whether it's you know, new forms of vaccines or new forms of diagnostics and take those forward to help prevent the next endemic from becoming a pandemic, but also thinking about the pandemic of, of uh, the unvaccinated and better communication on, on basic science literacy and public health, uh, as well as ways to design our healthcare systems so they can have some more resiliency for their systems and, and for the, the folks who are on the front lines, whether that's the primary care clinic or the intensive care clinic, the intensive care unit.
0: Well, thank you very much for coming in, Daniel.
4: Thanks, Mara. Everyone uh, stay safe, healthy, and uh get your get your vaccine booster when you're when you're eligible. Thanks.
0: Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is a physician scientist and innovator. More information is available at Danielcraftmd.net. We started this program with Daniel Pink talking about regret and how it can drive our lives, overwhelm our lives. And now Daniel Kraft shares a number of stories about burnout of medical personnel in the seemingly interminable COVID pandemic. In one sense, this is all about stress, situationally imposed, self-imposed, and the COVID pandemic itself has played its part. OEDC, the Organization for Intergovernmental Cooperation and Development, is an international body that represents some 38 countries. It tracks many parameters, including the prevalence of anxiety and depression in its member nations. The difference between 2019 pre-pandemic and 2020, the first year of the pandemic, is remarkable. In the United States, in the general population, the incidence of anxiety rose from 8% to 30%. And the incidence of depression rose from 6% to 23%. In round numbers, one out of four Americans suffered from depression in the year 2020. At the same time, SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration of the U.S. government, reports that the number of mental health treatment facilities essentially doubled offering their services via telemedicine. In 2020, Nearly 70% of mental health facilities offered remote treatment options, while recent science has shown that what is called telephone psychotherapy for depression is just as effective as in-person therapy. However you are dealing with your challenges in these troubled times, whether through such suggestions as offered by Daniel Pink or seeking professional help, The latter is available quite simply through your phone, just starting to deal with whatever burdens you're carrying. Many, if not most invisible to others may begin to ease with the actions you take now. And many, many options are available today. Again, all through your phone. 2020 has given way to 2021. Another full year of pandemic And we are now in 2022. Take some small action today to help yourself, whatever it is. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.
1: Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Noctreeb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and internet audio is available on the web at TechNation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Landcourt.